Check, check, check. Hello, welcome to episode 92 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts, myself, Tom Major, and Ben Marshall. And uh, yeah, been a while since we've done an episode, Ben. It's very exciting to be back on the mic. We're going to be talking about Burmese pythons, but um, before we get into all that, I thought I might talk a little bit about what's been going on sort of in our lives, because it's been a while since we've spoken, and the reason for that is that, like, yeah, hecticness has been occurring all over the board. You you want to you want to excuse the long delays is in a roundabout your, way your goal here in right? a roundabout way just justify we'll it. catch up we'll catch <laughs> up we always catch up but yeah no I've just been relentlessly tracking Escalapian snakes every day for the last few months and it's been awesome so cool to see what they get up to um, we've I can't remember where we were up to last time we recorded an episode but we've re- implanted nine different individuals with transmitters now so yeah I've just been chasing them around the countryside which has been very illuminating. They're uh, they're quite cheeky customers, quite willing to go into people's houses and yeah, they're never far away. Sort of like uh, you're never more than what is it, a few meters from a rat. I think if you live in Colwyn Bay, you're probably never that far from an Escalapian snake. I mean, that's 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 got to be a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's so. got to be a that's that's bumping up those house prices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ironically, a concern of one of the residents who has a snake in his loft is that the opposite will be true. But I said to him, just don't mention it on the ad. And no one will realise there's a snake in the lot. <laughs> I I personally scan ads for resident snakes. That's that's what that's what I look for. This is what that's I said to him. One of the fixed him. features I require. Yeah, I was like, you don't understand how much I would love to live in a snake in a snake infested house. But um, perhaps we're in the minority. It's difficult to know without doing like some kind of uh, survey or poll. Perhaps the majority of uh, UK homeowners would be delighted to have a snake in the house. I mean, I think the p- the positives massively outweigh the benefits to my mind i mean rodent control Wait, the positives out, out, outweigh the benefits sure is that what i said negative did i say positives yeah. outweigh the benefits the positives yeah the positives <laughs> and the benefits are pretty much equal um and the negatives are outweighed by it's like by a both. ton of feathers and a, and a ton of gold a ton of gold's heavier one weighs more. It's metal the, uh, the benefits <laughs> a ton of gold's gonna be heavier than a ton of feathers it's metal um so yeah that's been going really well um We've had a few casualties. Um, I can't remember. I think a couple had um, bit in the dust last time we spoke. But um, you mentioned a buzzard taking one. Yeah. Um, originally. Yeah. Uh, I do not believe any others had disappeared by ah, well, uh, last time we recorded. Since then, we had one get hit by a car, which is very sad. Um, I was tracking her, and she just started moving. She'd been hanging out in this, this garden for a long time, and she was heavily gravid. And uh, she'd taken shelter the day before in this like stone wall, which partitions quite a busy road. And I was thinking, ah, don't like this spot. I mean, I didn't like going there to track her because I felt like I was going to get hit by a car. And then sure enough, the next day I was like walking up the hill. She'd moved again. And I saw this, um, these two ladies standing outside a house. And um, they were asking me what I was doing because I had the radio kit. Everyone's always quite curious. Like, and because I'm by the zoo, yeah, yeah. everyone's always just like, oh, what have you lost? Um, so I was like, I haven't lost anything. It's a wild animal uh, I'm tracking. Just a medium-sized tiger. Yeah, uh, literally. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the tiger, but it's the smaller of the two, and it's the less vicious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... If you see him, just call out bitey. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm actually tracking a snake. And they were like, oh, well, there's actually a run-over snake over there. And I turned around, and I saw the snake. And I was like, oh, oh. it's Nessie. No... So yeah, she got run over. And it was really sad because she had like a perfect clutch of four eggs inside her, like ready to go, ready to be laid. Um, so yeah, that was a real sad one. And then 
another one um, got eaten by, we think it was a stoat because there was a flattened area of grass around him and something had eaten his liver and broken his neck. Um, and it looked like quite a sort oh, of stoaty situation. Very picky. Yeah, just like little nibbles taken here and there. And I've seen one get eaten by a badger before. And that was much more meat was gone. And the snake was like inside out like a sock. And it was just basically his yeah. skin. Whereas this was much less eaten. So yeah, hypothesize that it might be a stoat. Um, yeah, a few other dead snakes have turned up recently. And we think that's been cat attacks. Um, I think there's one cat in particular, mm. which is killing a bunch of them. We keep finding, well, we found three dead snakes in the grounds of this one like big care home and there's a black cat that's constantly about um so i suspect that was that cat um apparently it's unethical to catch cats and throw them in the canal if you don't know them yeah pro- <laughs> probably is i was i sorry, i was just partly thinking it's just just this sort of introduced species versus introduced species this this uh gauntlet of uh species that shouldn't really be hanging around but yeah it's, it's a it's a brave new human created ecosystem out there it is yeah it is it's constantly evolving and um it's kind of interesting for the native species because they just get to observe this sort of human created battleground firsthand yeah and sometimes they get yeah, to get involved this, this chaos yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well yeah like the buzzard they get yeah well, get a nice meal don't yeah, they yeah and you know a stoat's a native species so at least that gets a nice meal as well yeah but uh, yeah, so that's what's been going on. It's been great. It's been really fun. Um, yeah, I you know my wildest dream was to track ten in a year. So to get nine, pretty delighted. Um, and yeah, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been really fun. Um, yeah, always fun when they move and you're just like, oh, where's it gone? I've had a couple of times where they've like had one had one that we were tracking him in the woods and uh, we knew we were pretty close to him. So we just like perched up and just sat down for a minute and then. He came like basically just across our field of vision, like about seven or eight meters away, just like at regular snake speed, just mooching along slowly, slowly, you know, tongue flicking, just being a snake. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. To see them notice you or just, just go, go on about his business. Yeah. He didn't seem to see us. He just slowly mooched, went past. Um, it's just cool to see oh, one. That's the best. Yeah. Just at snake speed yeah. doing snake stuff without any intervention. It was really nice moment. And it's really uncommon that we see them because when they travel, they tend to travel across areas which have like dense ground cover. So even if the snake's yeah. moving in front of you, it's usually in some nettles or some brambles. You won't necessarily see it. So to see one actually just crossing the, the forest floor. Yeah. It was really, it was a big, it was a big treat. Well, and, and the chances are when you actually go to track the snake there in something, you know, they they spend as much of their time stationary as they do moving, even if they're not inactive when they're stationary, right? Yeah. Like there's a your chances are against seeing any activity, against seeing any crazy uh, behaviour out and about. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was really cool. And uh, what else happened? Yeah, I turned thirty. I'm a thirty year old man now. What? Yeah. The experience. Yeah. Is mounting. <laughs> there's grey hairs in my beard yeah well that's nothing new mate I mean I've got grey hairs in my beard that's that's just that's standard <laughs> yeah oh dear the ageing process comes to us all um, have you got any updates yeah I mean mine aren't as exciting you know they're not they're not dealing with with active little beasties running about the world um, just a few papers popped out uh, we have a preprint out about tortoises and their sort of space use, you know, you remember me mentioning 
And actually, we'll we'll talk about it more next next time. Tortoises are lined up. Looking forward to um, that. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. Forget talking about the tortoise one. I'll bring it up next episode properly. Focus, well, still, focus more on the other paper. Cool that it came out or is in preprint. Yep. It it's out there. It's 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 readable. It's tortoises and their home ranges. Same tortoises we covered last time. Um, but also another paper about wildlife trade stuff. This time we were looking at amphibians. So pretty much the same deal as the uh, the reptile trade paper, but this time trying to get a handle on amphibians. Um, I would say it's not quite as dire as the reptile one in terms of numbers, or not quite as shocking in terms of numbers of species traded. Um, but the same sort of general patterns seem to be seem to be there. Um, what well, and that is that um, things that get newly described tend to be under pressure straight away. Yeah, I think we had something like forty-one species that have been described since ninety-nine being traded. Um, I think we had just over one hundred and fifty species were vulnerable or worse, and also being traded. Um, and I think it was the case that forty was it forty-three or forty-seven percent of individuals are coming from the wild. I think it might have been 43. I think it was a better the better case. Either way, between 40 and 50% of individuals coming coming to uh, from the wild um, based on US import data. Um, so relatively similar to what we were seeing with the reptiles. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of quite a high percentage. Broad similar uh, sort of conclusions drawing from it too that there's these there are these gaps and yeah yeah and the, the overarching sort of uh, finding being that like it's probably not ideal to have unfettered collection of animals whose populations we don't understand right yeah yeah I mean at the end of the day you should probably know how many are in the wild before you decide to take stuff out of the wild and you should definitely have a system of keeping track of that uh it's a little bit more global and a little bit more uh accountable i mm. suppose would be the right way of doing it yeah i mean things get more and more complicated as species ids get more and more complicated but uh you know just just trying <laughs> trying for something more comprehensive i think would go a long way yeah I don't know. well um we'll put a link to that paper in the show notes and uh, as ever it's full of like really nice figures so um yeah oh yeah it's all it's all open access in eLife um data's all there did a graphical abstract and stuff it's on it's up on ResearchGate too it's all about we'll throw a link up but yeah sweet awesome well congratulations on that one cheers cheers let's do it let's get stuck into some Burmese pythons so Mm -hmm. yeah this episode it's pretty cool actually we've got um the rare opportunity to actually talk about Burmese pythons not only in their introduced range in the Everglades, which we've, you know, talked about a lot. We've on the definitely podcast. talked about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've come up several times. But also um, in their native range and what what they do in the, uh, you know, the rice paddies and the associated habitats of northeastern Thailand. Courtesy of yours truly. Well, not yours truly, Ben truly, and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, colleagues. So the first paper, I'll introduce it is Smith, Jones, Marshall, Wingsathorn, Gale and Strine 2021. All the papers today are from 2021 because we're just that current. 
Native Burmese pythons <laughs> exhibit site fidelity and preference for aquatic habitats in an agricultural mosaic published in the scientific reports. So yeah, great to read a paper about berms in their native habitat. It's a radio tracking investigation, isn't it? Um, one thing I noticed... Yeah, na- native but not natural habitats. Yes, that's... Like, the goal, the goal was to look at them in sort of the agricultural areas, the human-modified areas. There was a, a sort of concerted effort to focus the sample on uh, female Burmese pythons in agriculture. One of them didn't behave and went off into the forest, and another one was uh, mis-ID'd as female and actually turned out to be male. Yeah, I was, but, I was, you know, when I read that, I was thinking, classic. You, well, <laughs> you can really only mista- make that mistake one way round, which is mistaking a male for a female, because you, when you probe a snake, when, you know, uh, whether or not our listeners are familiar, but you get a metal rod and you essentially insert it into the cloaca and then push it tailwards down the tail. And in a female snake, it really won't go in. Um, it might go in one or two scale rows, but they don't have the pocket for the hemipenes, which is the male sexual organ, which is where you're looking for that metal rod to go if it's a male. So if it's a male, it probes very deeply. If it's a female, it probes very shallow. And sometimes the males just don't want to be probed or, you know, it won't go in for whatever reason. So you can sometimes, if you can't get the probe in, mis-ID a male as a female because you just, it feels like it won't go in when actually there is a hemipene pocket there. Maybe the snake's tensing if it's alert and awake or maybe, you know, it's just, it's a mistake that can happen. It's very rare yeah. to get it the other way around because if you if your probe goes in to a female, it means you've basically just stabbed a hole through her. And if you're being careful, that doesn't happen. So you can really only easily mis-ID one way. And I can right. totally see how that would happen. I've made the same mistake before in the past. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I d- but uh, it, it does it does give us a little a little sort of bonus <laughs> insight into male python. And this is what too. the boy did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also liked in this paper in the introduction, you guys said like the Burmese python is a large and then you just put in brackets greater than five meters. Like, let's not say how large. Let's say it's it's bigger than this. Like, I like that. It's just a nice little sort of, yeah, that's bigger than five meters. We can say that much. You don't get like the crazy estimate. Sometimes you see in these papers, it's like large. It's like 35 feet long. It's just not. Well, see, we had, I remember at some point putting the like 4.85 meter largest king cobra thing in a paper and you try and track down the original source citing that uh, evidencing the 4.85 measurement and it's a it's a nightmare i i i think i saw there were there were like um field uh field notes from some british uh corporal or major some some military rank i forget who out in india and he was talking about this guy that turned up with a dead snake one day and he gives like a rough estimate of how long it was in feet and inches and that's where these this record came from or something and he's just like that is <laughs> that is probably not adequate yeah. for our purposes it's the classic textbook thing we've like, talked about so many times someone says something enough times it becomes true but then you yeah you go back right. and it's like yeah um just some random matey eyeballed a snake <laughs> well i think that's why we we referred to i think we ended up referring to the largest one in the study area or something like that something that uh we could verify ourselves and still gives people an idea that these are big animals yeah but for those that don't know, Burmese pythons are very big, non-venomous, constricting snakes. 
And uh, yeah, because of their size, they they bump into people quite a lot, don't they? They get sort of, they're quite intrigued by people's pet ducks and geese and that kind of stuff. And yep. and that was how quite a few of the snakes in this study were actually found, wasn't it? Through um, people oh, ringing, yeah. ringing up the, the station or um, the team of guys that are trained to remove snakes and saying, yeah, there's a snake that's mucking around near my geese. Or has eaten some of my uh, ducks or whatever. And that's uh, how the, how the yeah. snakes were captured for this project. Yeah, I mean, ideally something like this, when you're trying to get an idea of what a population of animals are doing, you want a nice random sample. So you're not biasing your individuals towards ones which maybe have a... Uh, what's, what's the word? Proclivity. Proclivity, that's better, for uh, domestic livestock or getting themselves in trouble. I know, I read that in the paper. Slinking and it's like, across roads. Yeah. And it, it is something to consider. It, it's very hard to solve, especially with an animal with such low detectability. I mean, we always lament the fact that snakes are hard to find, but the reality is they are hard to find, and that has implications for how you design a study and how far you can sort of push... Um, or I suppose make claims really rather than rather than push anything because you do have to recognize all the snakes in this study were captured so yeah we can't say anything about the ones that weren't captured because maybe they were sneaky or maybe they don't care about the livestock yeah. maybe they were living a slightly different life it's inherent that every snake that was caught in this study was like pretty much predated by humans and they were the ones that couldn't get away or yeah but you can't, like you say, you can't just do a random sample of snakes. You can't just say, oh, yeah, let's find... It's very hard. I think you can with certain species. Mm. Uh, it's all with enough time, worn enough effort. But the, the thing is, those factors tend to be... <laughs> you, you, you reach a limitation. You know, it's too expensive. You need too big a team. You need too long a time. And at the end of the day, you need them of a certain size so you can track them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, you got you got to cut your losses. Yeah, we've had exactly the same experience here where a lot of our snakes have come. Yeah. A lot of us, I mean, to be honest, probably half the snakes we've tracked have come from one person's garden just because he's got a really nice log pile with a black tarpaulin on it and the snakes love it. It's like you catch you right. catch nine snakes that you can put a transmitter in a year. You better believe there's nine transmitters going in those nine snakes. You can't hope to find them in just random places. Yeah. No. Like you said. No, or you can't set up something systematic because they just won't... Uh... You know, like pitfall traps and stuff. They're just not effective enough to catch enough animals for a study like this in the period of time you have. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the Burmese python. It's got a big range, hasn't it? Bangladesh, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand. Huge. The Isthmus of Kra. Well, north of the Isthmus of Kra in Thailand. Cambodia, Vietnam, southern China, and even um, northern, northeastern India and southern Nepal. So, yeah, wide-ranging species. And the idea behind this paper was to quantify space use I noticed you didn't use the term home range. Well, it's because we didn't look at home range. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, look at the uh, movement patterns in uh, Apache land use matrix and uh, look to see if they had particular habitat features that they were kind of drawn to in that sort of habitat mosaic. Um, yeah. So snakes were tracked once daily. Yeah, like really, this is this is something that I commend. Uh, well, pretty much Sam and uh, her volunteers for you see the regime for you know the actual resulting data from this. I think they had seventeen 
What was it's, it's in the results? Yeah, it was crazy. Results somewhere, like so few. I think it was seventeen. That number points. rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, like very, very few missed um, radio tracking times. Like, yeah, seventeen data points. Oh, so on average, so seventeen per snake um, on average missed during the entire study period. When you're talking about a average tracking duration of uh, three hundred and twenty-seven days. So that's an average of 17 out of best part of a year. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and bear in mind, that is incredible because there's sometimes the gear goes wrong. Sometimes, you know, people get hurt sometimes as well. Like one of my field yeah, assistants heavy hurt rain. her knee. People she was are, out of action yeah. for a week. Yeah, you know, human beings. Or illness. Yeah, exactly. And also just like sometimes exhaustion. <laughs> so Yeah, transport, exhaustion, yeah. any any number of things. You know, other other life stuff getting in the way. But that is going out every day and getting a location on all these snakes. Yeah. And do it to such a yeah, remarkably consistent way. It was uh Yeah. Damn impressive. Really impressive. Yeah, an average of what, twenty five point four hours between tracks yeah that's neat so that that shows how little was lost just pushing that mean up an hour yeah so um should we talk about the kind of space use where do you want to go with it next or would you rather go on to habitat stuff no we'll we'll start with space use because we've got two papers that we're looking at for native versus uh invasive and they talk a lot about space use in theirs and, and have some comparisons so i think it's worth bringing that up you brought up the whole thing that this is space use and not home range and i want to sort of address that so people aren't just left on you know what what's the difference what the hell's a home range what's going on um the classic definition of home range it's all the way was it 1943 i think is when it was written by bert and that's this idea that it's this area of space that the animal is using throughout its life stage. It has everything it needs in that uh, area. The idea being, you can define a home range. There you go. That's what the animal needs. Whatever habitats, resources are in there. The idea with home range is it's capturing everything it needs for that life stage, right? But if you track an animal for several months, you're not going to be capturing the entire sort of range of behaviors that animal's going to exhibit over that life stage or lifetime if they don't sort of switch stages um if you're basically if you're going to estimate home range you need to be estimating areas the animal will use once you've stopped tracking it and also that areas that it could have used prior to it's this idea that you're trying to capture everything, that mm. entire life stage, the entire requirements during that life stage. And with sort of new methods that don't actually do in this paper, but you'll see in um, actually the talks paper I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show. I'm sure we'll talk about it next episode, even if, because we're doing talks this next episode. We yeah? are indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll come back. I'll, I'll go into more detail of the, the autocorrelated stuff that can do home range next time. But the idea is that you can infer where the animal will go for that entire period. There you go, home range, classic BERT definition. That's everything the animal needs. But if you don't have enough data to be able to predict where an animal is going to go, you're not really dealing with home range. You're more describing space use during the study period. 
yeah, it, you're not looking to generate any sort of predictions about where the animal could go or predictions on the area that animal needed. And so this one we're using um, dynamic Brownian bridge movement models where you have, uh, let's say your animal starts at point A, it goes to point B. You use uh, Brownian motion, which is basically a, a random walk from point A to point B. Um, that's sort of constrained or informed by how fast the animal can move. Again, pull, pulled from the data. So you do that from point A to B, then B to C, C, C to D, and so on and so forth. And you get this like heat map of where the animal could have been between your tracking. So in this case, from day one to day two, from day two, day to three, four. But that doesn't really have any ability to predict. It just has a very nice ability to uh, sort of give you an idea of where it could have gone when you weren't looking. Mm. So we're, we're talking about an area which... So when we're talking about the sort of space use area, it's our sort of estimate of the area the animal may have covered during the study period based on how uh, fast you know its movement capacity its ability to move uh, between our data points um, yeah over the over the study period if if that's relatively clear those two distinct things yeah, definitely. one's about i like the idea of the whole life the other's about very much study specific and trying to infill gaps one is making a, a, a bigger picture. Home range is a bigger picture thing. Mm. I like the idea of the snakes, the sort of uh, constrained random walk between the two points. Because, yeah, you know, they're not just going in straight lines between when you see them there. Right. So that's all about trying to infer what we missed. Yeah. Yeah. And so given that analysis... Um, came out with an average space use area of 100 hectares for tracked female Burmese pythons, which... Yeah, 100 hectares. I like that. It's a nice round number. But I always sit and wonder what a hectare actually is. And I know in the past on the podcast, we've talked about rugby pitches and other confusing measurements. Well, I've got a new one, which actually means something. Oh, yeah. So if you... It's one square kilometre. Yeah. Yeah. But like, <laughs> okay, yeah. But what does that mean? How do we visualize that, right? So But but hold 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 that in your head for later on when we're talking about the other paper because they do stuff in square kilometers. Yes. Yes. So I I what I did was I converted their square kilometers back to hectares so that we could dis yep. discuss the two. Oh good, you've already you've, you've dealt with that. Yes. Brilliant. Yes, cuz <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's confusing enough to deal with hectares which are, you know, what is a hectare? If you can visualize a hectare right now, congratulations. You're in the minority. Um, it's 100 meters by 100 meters. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, that's quite, that's quite neat, actually. But if you, another way, which is like a thing you might have seen, is if you imagine a running track, if you've seen a 400 meter running track, the Olympics were just on, maybe people have seen one, the interior grass area of that track, so the bit constrained within the running track, is a hectare. Oh. Oh, that seems quite nice, isn't it? Oh, that's quite a good one. Well, it's actually like 1.1 hectares, but never mind. Let's not get into it. And over many hectares, maybe that will become more inaccurate, but whatever. Just imagine that. It's pretty close. Um, so one other thing I noticed, I mean, that's quite a big, quite a big home range, really, isn't it, for a, for a snakey cruising about? Not home, Sorry, not home range. God, the cardinal sin's area. been committed. Yeah. The cardinal sin's been committed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not a herpetologist anymore. Um, so, yeah. 
One thing I noticed, which I thought was quite interesting, obviously the study area has got this massive highway dissecting it. Um, a couple of snakes actually straddled the highway in their home, in their areas of space use. Yeah. It's really hard yeah, to get off the I, home um, range thing. Like, geez, all the other studies have talked about home range. It's, 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 it's a common Well, slip. I know. That's one of the, you know, you look at our, look at our review um, and a lot of it... <laughs> It, it's a little bit tricky because um, people have been dealing with with home range and treating it as home range, but pe- while using methods that don't really tackle the core of what home range is getting at. Um, so now it's useful to have a distinction because there are methods that handle it and methods that don't. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a it is a newer thing and it is a little bit of a contrivance, I suppose, because you change your definition of. There's nothing to say that Bert's definition of home range is correct. Mm. It's just the one that people go to by default um if you want to say that home range isn't is an area animal you know an area that an animal is using over a distinct period of time then fine i i think we're we're narrowing down onto the burt one and trying not to confuse it yeah and hence using space use because how heavily the burt one is used and how little um how infrequently people draw attention to which definition of home range they're using in herbological papers. So you get ambiguity um, and chaos, which is to be avoided at all costs. Well, I mean, if, if you can, it's, it's nice to be clear with, clear with definitions yeah. and not just assume everybody knows what they're talking about. But at the same time, you do have to make some assumptions if you, you know, if you want to talk super efficiently, right? Yeah. So, so, um, in this case, we can be quite specific, but yeah, yeah. And no, I think it's stick to our guns. So the, um, the, the berms that we either side of the highway, do you have an idea mm-hmm. of how they were traveling? Were they crossing the road on top or were they using culverts? Um, I'm pretty positive. The main crossing point, you can see it with, uh, what, Pi B33. Um, that's a pretty sizable bridge uh, for the highway going over the top of uh, Irrigation Canal. Uh, it's the same one that's been used by King Cobras. Um, whereas the Python further south, I am less sure about how it crossed, but I do know there are some pretty decent drainage culverts nearby. Oh my gosh, that's the other preprint that's come out, is uh, King Cobra is using culverts and all the King Cobra crossing stuff. Oh, that's great, because I remember you were so interested in that when we were out in Thailand together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Max Jones, second author of this paper, is first author of that paper about uh, King Cobra's crossing highways, and it's got all the details of that, plus some uh, fun stuff. Amazing. On- female nesting routes going back and forth too amazing amazing and that's how it was a preprint as well oh awesome awesome well i have to track that down so um yeah so we've got this 100 hectare space use over the course of the tracking period mm-hmm. um what sort of habitats were these guys looking at because i think that's what people will be most curious about because we're we, you know we're all familiar with burmese pythons beautiful creatures um you know they're they're pretty ubiquitous lots of people have held probably held one when they've been at a zoo or something um so what what do they do in the wild like that's i think what people are curious to know what what kind of habitats do they actually associate themselves with what do they use well i mean top top billing for habitats for our guys anyway seem to be these uh aquatic water body sort of areas so we're talking them chilling out in banks and sort of field margin-esque areas, but more closely associated with water than anything else. Um, the sort of 
slightly less positive uh, angle is that they didn't really bother avoiding roads or avoiding settlements. Um, there weren't really any instances of them being super attracted to settlements or super attracted to roads, but the lack of avoidance is something that's a little bit concerning because you're, you're talking about two uh, areas that we know they come into conflict with people um, and even you know meet their meet their end on roads and things as as you were talking about with your escalapians we know they're a, they're a threat so you'd you'd like to see your snakes avoiding them mm. um but no such luck yeah saw a burmese python get hit by a motorbike while i was in thailand it's very sad yeah yeah not fun yeah so sticking near water but not avoiding things we'd like them to avoid um relatively yeah, not avoidance or attraction to, to things like forest and um, sort of drier forms of agriculture, your sort of corn and cassava and um, sugarcane, things like that. So they were quite associated with like the aquatic side of the agriculture stuff, rice paddies and things. Yeah, rice paddies, those, um, you get these uh, like mini reservoirs throughout the uh, sort of rice paddy system where they hold water and then they can move water from field to field and that's that whole system um the irrigation canals themselves that run through the agriculture is always a big that just seems like a hotbed for snakes the more we sort of look into those structures you, you're finding vipers in there you're finding your your common cobras in there you've got your king cobras you've got your pythons basically all the peaceable no there's a whole bunch of like mud snakes and things it's all the peaceable chill snakes yeah. go there and then the king cobras come along and eat them ruin it all and stack on them yeah. absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> but well it might be that or it might be that it's a really good place to hide from everything else going on out there because you you look at the terrestrial agriculture the stuff like cassava and corn they are more akin to, to sort of ecological deserts right cassava's horrible it's got no nothing underneath it it's just sort of bare bare soil and when that's harvested there is nothing you know it's baked in the baked in the midday sun there's nothing to hide under there's nothing edible for a snake out there so it's also incredibly hot incredibly harsh there's no shelter for yeah. for keeping yourself cool if you saw a burmese python in so, a cassava field it's definitely made an error yeah i mean the poor thing's cooking out yeah. there i'm sure yeah <laughs> Great for some initial thermoregulation in the morning, but uh, there's debate whether that's even required for these guys in in tropical regions. So yeah, it's, it's certainly certainly I would think a place where they'd overheat. Yeah. So you've got um, Burmese pythons. Oh, they also remained still for quite long periods, didn't they? They were resting up between activity sessions. Yeah, I mean, this is something I feel like you're seeing with a lot of snakes when you track them, is they've got these little bursts of movements followed by pretty decent uh, pretty decent stationary periods. Um, what do we have for the average for these guys? Like, we're talking weeks at a time, are we not? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like quite a long periods. Yeah, I'm trying I really to, like that oh, figure, I'm trying by to the find way. a nice summary of it. Figure, th figure three's quite useful. Sawtooth. Right? Yeah. Active, active, active. Sit down, chill, yeah. digest, maybe shed. Um, showing a little bit of maybe seasonal stuff with the uh, with the dry season. Sort of colder dry season. Mm. And there's some, some instances of individuals still moving around, but 
seems to calm down with sort of more activity spiking up where things get uh, things get warmer. Yeah. Now it's a little bit little bit tricky to uh, to pull out because of the way they were uh, sort of staggered and tracked and uh, with with the overlap of certain seasons, but. I would be amazed if there wasn't uh, some decent uh, decent seasonality in these guys, especially being associated with water and the change in the water levels, especially in the agricultural areas. The dry season, everything like everything dries up, and you know rice paddies are not not operational. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit more activity when it's wetter and long periods of just chilling out, digesting presumably prey or yeah, shedding their skin. And yeah, we're, 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 we've started to see the same thing with Escalapian snakes too. Like, And I think, you know, you mentioned it in that, um, that paper you did a while ago where there's like a few different modes of snake behavior, um, isn't there? But yeah, a lot of them tend to do this sort of like maybe, you know, five days off, two days on <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we saw um, there's that great Boiger paper, the Guam Boiger paper about uh, them getting fed and then they sit down for a week while they digest it. I just found the the stat in uh, this paper. Uh, stationary periods were on average uh, five days, uh, but range from anything from a day to oh my gosh, whatever two thousand hours is in a day. Holy smokes, that's a long time. Wow. What's that? 2,000 over 24. Um, yeah, what? Like 82, 83 days? 83 days of just chilling. Yeah. But I think that that's the instance of the female that was nesting. nesting. Yeah, that sounds about right. Or certainly getting ready to nest. Ah, right. Um, and reusing the same sites, too. Five out of seven snakes reusing shoulder sites. Hmm. Even with some coming back thirty-five times to the same site and stuff, like instances of pretty pronounced site fidelity. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, they know where they want to go to. And coming back to them, yeah, coming back to a site every sort of month and a half too. So, yeah, yeah, you know, the repeated use, chilling out, this sort of stop-start lifestyle. We're talking about a an ambush predator. Um. I love the idea of them, a Burmese python being like getting back to its shelter site after a month and just being like, oh, it's nice to go away, but it's nice to come home. <laughs> and then just sitting there for a month and a yeah, half. Yeah, chilling. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good explanation of what Burmese pythons get up to in Thailand. Um, shall we move on to them in their non-native introduced, the dreaded word, invasive range? Yeah, I think the only thing worth mentioning is that tracking tracking these guys once a day when they're inactive these were they 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 like tracks and the pythons tend to be nocturnal in terms of activity um you are missing all like the little within day movements so you know we, we talked about site fidelity there and them coming back to a site that's only on a day-by-day basis they could have gone out and come back multiple times during the night. You know, we don't know how their sort of fine scale movements operate or whether they move away from the water bodies uh, to do something else and then come back to the water bodies and that just happens to be where their shelter sites are during the day. So there's still more, you know, to tease out of exactly where these pythons are. Um, 
and whether they do act like something like roads um they might actually be avoiding roads on a finer scale so like more subtle changes they go out and they go foraging they won't set up for an ambush at night near a road but shelter site wise they can handle being you know relatively ambivalent to roads because they're underground and they're settled down you know they're not out and about they're not on top of the road so these what we're talking about with them not caring about roads and liking water bodies and coming back to sites and stuff only really applies to the resolution of the tracking which is this sort of daily movement pattern and uh we'll move on to the next paper and you'll see they're sort of talking about a different scale of things again Mm. and that can make it quite hard to directly compare what you're talking about because you're essentially talking about different um uh different behaviors if you were to look at where i've been um once a month for the past year you would be looking at a very different type of information if you looked at where i was for the past week let's let's say you did seven months you tracked me for seven months and you got a location on me once every seven months on the first of the month checked where i was sorry so you mean you got an ep- you got a one one uh fix on ben a month yeah. yeah yeah okay where is he okay he's he's diurnally active so we'll track him at night <laughs> oh, he's in bed okay same location come back next month he's still in bed uh next month yeah but then you do another study and you think well we'll get the same amount of data won't we we'll take uh we'll take seven data points but you do it all in a week and you don't have any control over over when you do the uh tracking so then you say, oh, yeah, day one, he's in bed. But then next day you're, you're a little bit late or something. He's like, oh, he's down the shops. Yeah. And he's having a cup of tea. He's in the kitchen or something. And you start painting a very different picture about the activity and the behaviors you can detect during that time, right? One, you're going to be detecting uh, my sort of, uh, I suppose, grand travel and, and where I would you know, live long term, perhaps. The other you're detecting uh, or might be able to detect foraging movements or something like that or, you know, subtler, finer scale movements that are talking about a different type of behavior than where I choose to live over the year or something like that. So you can, with the same amount of data, you can get totally different answers, even though on the onset, it's like seven data points, seven data points. Mm. Time scale changes everything. Yeah. And when you're tracking changes everything. So you do have to bear in mind all these spatial ones, they have their limitations in what you're observing and what you can't infer from those observations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I feel so fortunate to study something which is like diurnal. Right, because you're you're getting a bit of movement stuff in it and you're doing multiple tracks a day. So you're getting a bit of um sort of activity during the day yeah sometimes yeah like if you did one per day exclusively you could never say much about within you know anything sub a day in terms of movement mm. it is interesting even to a day you're, you're borderline yeah like you'll go in the morning and find the snake like out in a tree or something like that and then you go in the afternoon and, it, yeah. and it's back in its shelter site and you're just like okay so i captured that little movement but how many times does that happen and i don't see it it's just too brief of a window Precisely. yeah so yeah, yeah, just goes to show, doesn't it? The more it's exactly what you've said. You know, the more frequent your tracking regime, the more you'll capture, and you do have to be aware of the limitations. 
Yeah, and that's why we sort of you know bringing up shelter site, shelter site, shelter site in this one because you're looking at the animal when they're sheltering. Yeah. So that's sort of the limitation of your what you can say. Yeah. It's, it's the shelter sites like to be near water, or they don't care about roads or settlements or whatever. Yeah. So. So let's move on to the um, Burmese pythons in Florida paper. So this is by Bartoshek, Smith, Reed and Hart, 2021. Spatial Ecology of Invasive Burmese Pythons in Southwestern Florida, published in Ecosphere. So we've heard about what they get up to in their native range. How about their non-native range? So they're in the Everglades. They were introduced in the 80s and they're a novel apex predator. They've been ravaging mammal and bird populations in the Everglades. Um, and this study takes place in eastern Collier County, Florida, USA. So it's within the Big Cypress Basin watershed, which is a western component of the Greater Everglades ecosystem. It's actually not Everglades Everglades. Um, National Park proper. It's actually north of the National Park, but it is still considered to be mm. part of the kind of greater Everglades ecosystem. And uh, yeah, they were doing a similar study, radio tracking um, Burmese pythons. They caught a whole bunch of Burmese pythons in this study. Uh, 45 snakes had transmitters implanted. Um, 25 of those had enough data points to be analyzed. Um, how, how, much, how much data is enough? I think it was like... I can't remember. They had like a arbitrary cutoff of I think it was like two hundred and something points. Oh, here it is. We radio tracked pythons until mortality occurred or the study ended. Obviously, so we get yep. for this spatial analysis, we cut off data collection in April twenty eighteen, and we retained only individuals with at least fifteen locations over at least two hundred and fifty okay. days. Ah, brilliant! So it's duration and data quantity. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nice, 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 nice. Oh, good, it is reported somewhere. Yeah. Well done. Awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, tracking the snakes, uh, a little, a lot less frequent, uh, but a lot less frequent, their tracking occasions. They were tracking them on average about once a week. Um, in America, they have cool stuff, right? So one of the tra radio tracking kits they used actually had a truck mount. So they have a omnidirectional antenna that they, it magnet, it sticks onto the top of the truck with a magnet and that is receiving in all directions at any given time and they just drive around in the truck till they hear the beep of their snake and then they get the antennas out and start using those that is that's boss it's uh that's boss that's fancy it is, is fancy what it is. and occasionally they got the yeah. plane out as well because why not get the plane out have a cruise around in the plane so you can find <laughs> their damn snake yeah, was it what once a month break out the plane yeah you know I'd love to have a pickup truck with a little beeper on it. We have a little budget version of that where we drive around in my gold Corsa with the window down, poking out. And we have to go up and down the road twice because we've only got the antenna can only poke out the one, one side. window. <laughs> there's a, one of my field there's a beautiful sort hanging out of the window. against. Big yeah. up Guillaume, big up Becca, big up Antonio. Yeah. Legends. But yeah, against so, all adversity. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. And it works though, you know, the you get the beat. Corsa. The funniest thing is like, if I use the indicator, the indicator emits like a, a, a an unknown radio frequency, right? So if, if I indicate, <laughs> the person holding the kit's always like, oh, snake, snake, snake. So it's the indicator. Psych. <laughs> uh, oh, that's brilliant. That's yeah, funny. That is brilliant. But yeah, truck mounted omnidirectional antenna. Hot shots. Um, yeah. So yeah, they located the snakes once a week. And this study took place for five years between January 2013, June 2018. So, I mean, it, I guess it takes that long to find that many snakes. Um, and yeah, they used 
I mean, should we get into the sort of um, home I mean, range stuff? Well, well, just yeah. I mean, just just the just the sort of because I just talked about scale and how frequent tracking and duration can mess with things. An idea of their their sampling regime. You say it was on average once a week. Um, I think that's what they aimed for uh, because it ranged from everything from they would get a, a track on a subsequent day. Um, which happened for almost all their snakes. Um, a lot of their means uh, for their snakes are around, they sort of range between 10 and sort of high teens mostly. So so we're talking about most of the time it's two weeks. And then something that's always unavoidable, it seems, with, with tracking snakes is then they go sort of missing for a little bit, especially with very long-term tracking projects like this one. So a lot of their maximums are 260, there's a 290 in there, but mostly around this sort of 250 mark. Um, so there are decent-sized gaps where they don't have any data. Um, there are some instances where they're getting back-to-back tracks on days, but with a mean of around two weeks. Right. I think that sort of illustrates how uh, difficult it is, for one thing, um, but also how careful you have to be going forward with sort of interpreting these results of that level of variation that's not just this study compared to what we were just talking about that had a very tight, almost you know daily regime with, with fewer instances of deviation, but... Even within the same individual, you've got a lot of variation of having a very, maybe a, a frequent tracking period for, for a month, and then it goes into a place where it's quite hard to get a data a data point on, to get a fix on. And so the inferences for an individual are going to be skewed to where you can get data as opposed to maybe their usage and things like that. So you've got to be a little bit careful of how uh, that variation could be biased towards Basically, things that enable you to track it. Yeah. If the snake lives near a road, it's going to be much easier to find than if it's gone, you know, two kilometers into really difficult terrain that you can't get to. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea is to work out, you know, to sim- get rid of all those confounding factors because obviously you want to look at habitat or something. But if habitat's also something that's impacting when you can collect data, you've got to be a little bit careful about the inferences you make. So you're not just describing where you could track the snake, you're describing where the snake was using. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. 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 And sometimes that distinction can be hard because you don't know how much each, the influence of each one. So. Right, okay. So, yeah, um, I guess you just have to be a bit more careful with your inferences in this film because of the regime. You do. Yeah. yeah. So um, that said, the... Should we talk about the habitat selection or the home range size stuff? Well, let's let's start off what they're or what they're calling space home range, range. space use mm, um, as home range. Right. So they 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 do bring up the whole the whole bird definition, which is great. So specific on on what they're referring to as home range. I would argue that the analysis they use doesn't adequately match uh, that definition. Um, so they do MCPs and they do basic kernel density estimators. MCP, very simple, draw a box around 95% of the points 
with the suggestion that 5% of those points are sort of uh, exploratory movements and don't constitute exactly what the animal's requiring. It, it's not what it needs, that's just exploratory to find out if there's something good about. Um, MCP, I mean, it, it's, as, it's as simple as it sounds. It is just draw a box around points. Um, it's sort of descriptive in that sense. It doesn't take into account the movement capacity of the animal or anything along those lines. It doesn't take into account the order in which those points were collected. It doesn't take into account any sampling bias that I was just sort of discussing. You've got a lot of points one place and then one miles away. But that point, you know, it's spent 20 days at and therefore is really important. If it just happens to be far away, it's going to get chopped out of that 5% and potentially ignored. So... It's got some pretty serious problems. I mean, we've demonstrated some of the error rates with MCPs in in a previous paper. Yeah. Um, you know, the the plus side of it is real simple to conceptualize. It's just draw a box around points. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest issue with it is sort of how useful it is. I suppose. Um, Not very. What about um, what about KDEs? Well. KDEs are better because you're, cl- you're getting closer to this sort of probabilistic idea. It's sort of taking into account density of points as as some sort of weighting. Um, downside with the, the sort of naive KDEs, and again, sort of, there are solutions for this now. There's autocorrelated KDEs, autocorrelated kernels, which take into account a lot of this stuff. These ones they're using, they don't under- the, they don't take into account time. So again, like the MCP example, if you had a point that animals spent a lot of time at, maybe that's more important. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is much more important. You probably want to take that into account. Yeah, yeah. And the order in which they go to these points is really important. Yeah, I think... Like the DBMMs do movement pathways great. It could be a U-shaped home range or something, and you need to know that the animal didn't cross into the middle. That might be important information. I think the best way to visualize it is to imagine you're tracking. Let's use me as an example this time. So um, yes. a few weeks ago, I went down to Aberystwyth. And uh, a few weeks before that, I went across to Chester. So right. Aberystwyth is like a long way south of where I live. Chester is a long way east of where I live. If you had points yep. on my movement and you had most of my time spent in Bangor, because of where I live. And then, oh, I made a foray yep. down to... Um, Aberystwyth and then I made a foray over to like Chester okay the 95% MCP those those points might be eradicated but if I also had a trip to like Southampton all of these points joined up are going to create this massive polygon when the reality is all I did was travel down a road to Aberystwyth and along a road to um, Chester and then back again so my actual like utilization of space is like two thin strips but a an MCP yep. will, will just draw a box around them all and it will think I've spent a bunch of time in like mid Wales, which I've basically just hardly ever even been to. Um, right. And that's the, that so is the short potential to really overestimate the area usage because it's filling in areas that you've got no evidence the animal used yeah. because it has an ignorance of the order and the sort of potential movement routes you took. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and, and the kernels, kernels are similarly problematic in that way. Uh, is then not going to recognise the route you took. Because if you went Aberystwyth up to Bangor, across to Chester, then down, 
that's making that sort of N or, you know, hoop shape, I suppose. Yeah. That would look very different if you started at Bangor, went down to Aberystwyth, further south, and then back up to Chester and back to Bangor in a sort of more... Oh, of course, yeah. And that's where the, up, the lack right? of sequence falls... Yeah, that's where it falls down. Exactly. Precisely. So, and you could have a hard barrier between Aberystwyth and everything east. You know, what if you... What if all the roads to, like, Cardiff area were completely out and you had to go via Bangor to get to Chester? You'd be, you're basically missing information there. You'd, there might be something quite critical about the shape of the home range that you'd be missing. Yeah. And it would similarly be misdescribing the area usage because you're reusing an area as opposed to taking a new route, even though that new route might have been shorter. Yeah. So, yeah, basically what we're getting at is that, like, the methods they've used here to estimate uh, space use uh, as home range is, like, a little bit... It's not It's not the same as what you guys did in your paper, and uh, there's definitely a, st- right. a, strong, a strong argument for um, DBMMs being a lot more accurate. So... Um, well, DBMMs being more accurate if you want to get the study, you know, the movement pathways and the sort of study time space use. Sure. Um, autocorrelated kernels are the way to go for this home range thing which to be fair they call out and they specify that's what we're going for Um, so they wouldn't want to be doing DBMMs in this case because that's not a home range method but um, there were the autocorrelated kernels to tackle that Um, the other slight issue with well slight issue, large issue with KDEs is there's some sort of parameterization um, issue where you have to feed it a number at the end of the day to tell it to be how how generous it is for the probability the probability basically you have these data points where it okay animal is definitely there the further away you get from that data point the less likely the animal was yeah but you have to tell it some way of working out that range how far could the animal have gone when we weren't looking you remember DBMs? I said that it, that was basically worked out by the movement capacity of the animal. Yeah, brilliant. That works. Uh, kernels don't have that understanding. You just of pick an arbitrary speed, number. Movement. Well, it's it's somewhat arbitrary. I mean, it's based on the distribution of points as opposed to movement and speed, which is at the end of the day, that's what the data set is. It is it is a movement data set. So it. <sighs> Basically, it doesn't work as well. It's it's the yeah. <laughs> it's the short version, and they even have an issue where some of their the the method they choose doesn't actually work for some individuals. So they had to uh, sort of wrangle uh, to get something that works with all their individuals, and that's because it's a, a movement data set. So it, it's not going to uh, it's going to have structure there that these methods aren't exactly designed to deal with. Whereas the autocorrelated stuff or DBMMs or whatever that understand what the data set is. Tend to do better. Bada bing, bada boom. So the right. um, the space use that the Pythons had in this paper, they the smallest was, um, oh, I haven't converted these. Uh, well, I can do it. It was 350 hectares. The largest was 100, no, 1,480 hectares. Yeah, big, Massive big, big, home range. Big areas. So that's... Um, so you... T- what, were those the kernel yes, estimates or kernel. the... Yes, kernel. 95% okay. that is. So kernel estimates using... 
Okay, so they're using a quite conservative way of uh, smoothing the kernels. So I, I doubt that the sort of big areas are coming from uh, how, how they set up the kernels themselves, would be my guess. Okay. Um, which is good. So it's a slightly more conservative estimate, which some kernel estimates can be huge. Um, do, do we have the MCP values as well? I haven't got them handy. Home range is uh, 6.75 kilometers squared is what? Uh, like 675. Okay, so 675 hectares for the males. And... 282 for the females so just looking at that just comparing the 95 mcp to the kernels on the same data set we've got an average of 670 being con- converted into 750 sort of ish no sorry 850 ish so six six seven five to 850 for the males same data, same individuals, 200 ex- extra hex tears because you've changed the way you're analyzing the data. Yeah, so that's going to be, yeah, I mean, it just shit. That just, it, it demonstrates the, the impact of this stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm interested in the difference between the estimates that they have, and let's use the kernel density estimates, as compared to the estimates that you had in your paper from the home ranges in Thailand. Uh, from the space use in Thailand, yeah. excuse me, space use in Thailand. Um, and obviously there's a dramatic difference there where, um, you know, it's much, much larger for the uh, snakes in the Everglades. Way, way bigger home range. Yeah. Uh, way bigger Yeah, I, I think I think it's way bigger than, even if we just look at the females, because they're probably more comparable, you're looking at 562 hectares in the Everglades versus your 100 in their native range, even with the differences in methods, those guys are using a bigger area for sure. They've got to be. Yeah. Why do you think that might be? Um, I mean, one thing they're tracking them for longer durations. Yeah. Um, you know, specifically the females, we've got individuals that are tracked for what one thousand eight hundred days is one of the highest ones. Uh, lowest one is two hundred eighty-eight um, compared to the previous study we were just chatting about i think that they ranged from 41 days up to 662 um but tend to be around the sort of i think it was 320 days was the average eyeballing that average i mean it's a much higher average tracking duration Mm -hmm. even if the number of locations is fewer they're going to be more distributed you know if they're using a bigger area you're going to capture all of that yeah um Actually, number of relocations is relatively relatively similar, interestingly enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tricky to work out, isn't it? Because we're, we're talking about... I mean, we are talking about different environments, aren't we? We're talking about non-agricultural areas. Um, yeah. Although they were... It does... One of their findings is that pythons selected agriculture and as one of their sort of preferred habitat types. Was that on the, the third order or the second order habitat selection? Uh, I think second order. Mm. Uh, God, that's a bit of a confusing distinction for the listeners, though. Oh, it's super d- confusing. So 
Second order is where they're picking within the whole landscape. Third order is where they choose to go in their own little home range. Right. So, mm. you you know when we were talking about me and tracking me over a long period of time? Yeah. The long period of time with fewer data points is probably more akin to second order. Mm-hmm. Where, I, where am I in the world over a, a period of time? Whereas tracking me over a week and being quite specific with where I am is probably more third order. Gotcha. Where am I going within my little patch? So, it's a question of scale. Yeah, but I mean, generally speaking, yeah, there were some differences between the habitat they'd chosen in breeding season and non-breeding season. Obviously, females need to find somewhere dry to have their clutches of eggs. They can't just lay them in a swamp because they'll get waterlogged and die. <laughs> we did have this this similarity between the two papers with uh, water sort of edges, these boundary areas near water, but not in water, um, which we can be very confident with a, with a smith paper that's that's the case because they were shelter sites and they're not going to be sheltering underwater all uh, all day no so that that seems like a very uh very consistent finding between the two of them so yeah they're you know they're, they're, they're oh it's hard to sort of briefly sum up their habitat choices really isn't it it is it, it is um I mean, they're suggesting that they're avoiding urban areas. Um, I, I would assume that the urban areas in Florida in this area are a lot more urban than the settlement areas that uh, we were talking about previously in Thailand. You know, you're going from sort of small village to heavily tarmacked urban urban areas when there's, you know, you're looking at much, much smaller buildings and much more uh, green space between buildings potentially as well. So that might explain that difference. Mm. Um, didn't look at elevation in the Thailand one because simply didn't have the uh, have the data available at high enough resolution for that um, for the movements that we we had. And it was re- we're talking about them living in rice paddies. So elevation change from one rice paddy to the other, you're talking, you know, it's, it's, it's tiny. <laughs> it's nothing. It's it's a very flat area. And the thing you care about is are they in the base of the rice paddy or are they on a field margin okay that's like a difference of 60 centimeters well, maybe <laughs> they refer to they refer to 50 centimeters as high elevation in this paper right precise yeah there you go so they needed some pretty damn good elevation data to be able to put, pull that out so that's that's really neat to see and i would bet that a similar thing was seen in in thailand if we had that data available the only trick is we don't know where in the sort of field margin or where in a lot of these burrow systems they would be. Mm. So you could you could get an idea of where they were, where the sort of surface elevation was, but not where the actual snake was. Sure. So yeah, they've got these Burmese pythons. They've got quite large ranges. Um, they're using a mixture of habitats, but uh, quite water-based, you know, swampy sort of areas. But they picked areas which had access to both wet and dry areas so they could get out of the water. They found a load of Judas snakes in this paper, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so so mm. Judas snakes, when you're radio tracking a snake, if a snake leads you to more snakes, it's called a Judas, Judas snake because Judas betrayed Jesus, as we all know, uh, historical fact. And they located 108 additional snakes from Judas snakes. Um 
equal numbers of males and females, 53 males, 55 females. So basically their radio tracked pythons led them to an additional 108 pythons. Um, and they were big snakes as well, you know, like three meter long snakes. Yeah, um, yeah. So they, and obviously being as this is an invasive species, they actually removed those ones from the study site and they removed over 2,300 kilograms of reproductive python biomass, which is a, kind of an unpleasant way of thinking about snakes in terms of their their sort of gross weight once converted to snake mints but um yeah that's what happened so uh yeah whether or not i mean yeah it's it makes you wonder whether or not having all of these conspecifics abducted and never appearing again during the course of the study would have any influence on the behavior of the snakes whether or not you know there's any sort of territoriality kind of or social behaviors yep. which were interrupted by doing that is kind of an interesting angle which is probably at this point impossible to pick apart i i absolutely think it's impossible to pick apart i mean it's hard enough to get a decent estimate of where these snakes are in a consistent manner so let alone collect enough data to see that change i mean i i i mean i talked about the sampling biases of of the thailand study i think similar things apply to this one right they're where are snakes more likely to be found where they can be found i i don't know how uh skewed that sampling is for this paper but um they use us what what do they use finding wise they're, they're using surveys and uh active searching and conducting radio activities searching along canal banks agricultural levees roadsides we talked about those biases in the in the taiwan the same ones apply here you're going to be scooping up snakes that are more likely to be willing to live along canal banks living to live in agriculture areas and willing to go near roadsides you're not aware of the population sort of further and it's hard to hard to gauge that with your sampling so you know you bear that in mind with all these inferences it's inferences based on a non-random sample in both studies uh hard to overcome yeah i mean something to something to watch out for yeah it's worth considering you've got to catch the snakes you can catch but yeah bear in mind they're not representative of all snakes the sneaky the sneaky ones you never yeah. see <laughs> um yeah cool so uh i think that pretty much wraps it up so slightly larger space use in the native well not slightly much much larger you know by you know five times larger space yeah. use by the snakes in their introduced range whether that's because of um longer tracking durations or a difference in tracking frequency possibly uh maybe not and different in in analysis method yeah. is another possibility. Yeah. So yeah, you know, not quite absolutely not, not quite direct comparisons, but um, like you say, it's it, it is almost certainly the case. No, but there is the scope for a direct comparison and a direct sort of mitigation of those differences because basically you you could you could probably do a good job at working out the errors introduced by the differences in tracking regime. Right. You know, we, we've done that paper showing uh, how. The loss of data introduces greater uncertainty into estimates. So potentially with something along those lines, you could correct for the differences in tracking regime and duration and run both these data sets using the same analysis and do a fairer direct comparison if the data was available. There it is. Make the data open, folks. So, so, so let's... Let's move on. Let's do. Let's get to our species of the bi-week. That's Burmese pythons. Amazing. Yeah, a couple of awesome space stuff. Amazing apex Some predators. Cool insights. But massive snakes. Yeah. 
great looking, glossy, beautiful creatures. Amazing. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, actually, we didn't... Go on. D- sorry. We, there was another thing they pull off in this paper. The nesting. Oh, the nesting, the nesting. Which was... Because I, I think this is... You know, they didn't have too much to go on because they didn't have too many nests. Um, they had like 16 nests, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, six, 16 data points you know, as a basis to try and predict where nests are is pretty tricky. To me, that seems amazing. But, I um, found one nest and I'm delighted. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not downplaying the effect of seeing sixteen nests. I'm just what, um, saying. Just to be clear, that's what you're doing. <laughs> okay, I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry, but it it's worth mentioning, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Of having these sixteen nests and having an idea of the potential locations they could be using it. I still think there's a lot of uncertainty in how how sure you can be, but it's a nice starting point, isn't it? Of uh, setting you up to be able to direct survey efforts towards areas that may have nests. And uh, if you've got individuals that are booking it towards an area that you're like, oh, we know that's suitable nest area. They don't usually go there. Maybe that's time to keep a closer eye on them because they're heading towards uh, something that may be indicated as prime nesting location. And in a species that you're trying to eradicate, although they never will. Um, yeah, that's good to know. Mate, I think yeah, so all of this stuff about that control, slightly higher elevation it's stuff. like so wildly optimistic, isn't it? Like this could help inform control efforts for the invasive Burmese python. It's like the only thing that's going to eradicate the Burmese pythons now is an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Nuclear Armageddon. Yeah. That might do it. Might just mutate them into super, super pythons. There's a film that just came out recently called Love and Monsters, which has exactly that as the plot. Humanity fires a bunch of rockets at an asteroid that's coming towards Earth. It's quite vague. And then the fallout from those rockets <laughs> mutates all cold-blooded creatures into gigantic monstrosities. It's pretty fun sci-fi, actually. I, uh, I I enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect, um, but yeah, it's just an easy watch. And you got you got giant, yeah, some cold-blooded, some pretty cool monsters. Excellent. Yeah, and it's well done. It, it, is, it is decent. Right, let's move on to the species of the bye week. Yeah. Okay, so the species of the bye week this week is bye. She she. Ma, Gao, Bu, Grisma, Li, and Wang. And it is a sheep in wolf's clothing, Elafe Zifodonta, species novella. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Uh, and it's possible mimicry to Protobothrops Jerdeni, published in Zuki's 2021. So, um, yeah, Elafe used to be this massive catch all genus for snakes that looked a bit sort of rat snakey. At one point, it had 40 snakes species within that one genus. Yeah, it to me, it's always the one I think of like, ah, Colubridae. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, what's, it? it's the genus that reminds me of Colubridae. Yeah. It is. It is the Just, like. Yeah. There you go. It's the flagship. It's, that, that, that's a snake snake. Yeah, right there. exactly. Um, but, you know, with modern molecular techniques and uh, advances in uh, phylogenetics, that number 40 has been reduced down to 16 species in the genus Elafe. Um, with new genera being created to better represent the relationships between snakes in the family Colubridae, essentially. Um, 11 of those 16 species that are still in Alafe are found in China. So China's a bit of a hotspot, as with so many things, for snakes in the genus Alafe. And in this paper, we're headed to the southern slopes of the Qinling Mountains in Shangxi, China, which has long been regarded as the geographical, biological and climatological boundary between North China which has like a warm, temperate monsoon climate, and South China, which is subtropical monsoon climate. So these mountains kind of 
split the country in half, you know, in so many ways. And the authors were serving. Wait, say that. Did you did you say that right way round? Subtropical in South and North China's got the North. a warm. Mm, did I say that the wrong way round? Did they put it in the paper the wrong way round? I would have expected it to be in the opposite. I would have thought the, the more tropical would have been further south. No, 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 no. That is what happened. It is what happened. That's what I okay. said. North China's got a warm, temperate monsoon climate. Ah, temperate. Yeah. And South China's okay. got subtropical monsoon climate. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. The, the, the addition <laughs> of the word warm is slightly confusing there. Yeah. But yeah, that's the right way round. Yes. Yeah, so when, you, when you're contrasting it to tropical, you'd... It's going to be cool. Like, yeah, you think compared so, Compared to tropical right? or subtropical, right? <laughs> yeah. But. Um, but yeah, so the authors were serving in these uh, Shinling Mountains and they found these two snakes, two individuals, and they looked unlike any other local colubrid. And they described that species in this paper. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really cool snake. It's um, it's sort of got... I mean, it's one of these snakes that's uh, got a lot of different colours going on. It's like mottled red, yellow, brown... Um, really nice little face, black and black and yellow markings on the face. And as they say in the paper, and even in the title of this paper, it bears a striking resemblance to a local viper species called uh, Protobothrops jordani. And uh, yeah, the the similarity, it, it really is quite unbelievable, isn't it? There's, there's photos of them side by side in the paper. The coloration. Um, it is. It's this black uh, side line on the side of the head that um that reaches the eye is particularly uh striking in both 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 species like it's the first thing you notice on the face i feel yeah definitely and it's crazy because um obviously protobirthrops uh jordani aka the oriental pit viper or the yellow speckled pit viper it has um pits a pit heat pits in its face um <laughs> And yeah, the obviously, you know, we've talked about pit vipers and their heat pits before on the podcast. They use it as a means of finding prey. And um, obviously being um, a member of the family Colubridae, this newly described rat snake doesn't have those. So instead it has a black dot on its face, which literally from a distance looks exactly like that pit. So any animal that knows how to ID snakes in the local area will mistake this snake for that snake. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> it really is cool. It's really, really like compelling mimicry. Yeah, something that's that sort of subtle and I suppose not. Re- I don't know whether it's a pattern you see in other colubrids, but have them positioned side by side like that is a pretty convincing case. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they've called the snake Elaphe ziphodonta, and uh, ziphodonta comes from the ancient Greek siphos, which means knife or blade. And donty, which refers to tooth, and it means blade-shaped teeth. And uh, yeah, the snake has some really unique blade-shaped teeth, which differ. Recurved. Yeah, they're yeah. just like big and curved, aren't they? Um, which differ from... Cookery snake-esque. Yeah, very much so, which is unusual in the, in the genus locally. So it's a good way, if you, you know, if you can't tell because it looks just like a viper, have a look at its teeth. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> what? Well, what what wonderful for advice? Oh, there's a there's a snake that looks like a venomous viper, but it might not check be. Check its teeth. I better check its <laughs> yeah, teeth. Pick it up. Open wide, little guy. <laughs> pick it up. Um. So yeah. Uh. No. 
did some uh, some uh, phylogenetic analysis here, some genetic stuff. Let's talk about its habitat. It's currently only known from this one town called uh, Chengguan Town in Shaanxi Province, China. The uh, new species like sunny or semi-sunny gravels and bushes on slopes of less than 20 degrees, quite specific, um, along this Chang'an River. I know, gravels, I know gravel's a proper term for like a, a naturally occurring sort of side of hill and stuff but when if i just describe it just basking out in like little gravel driveways and things yeah. when you say like that but it's well it's got to be a, a driveway that's slightly sloped for for drainage purposes they, they refuse anything that's ungraveled cement nah <laughs> got to be graveled oh wow so when you capture this snake as well do they have a common name for it uh i didn't see one but i can't say i was looking too hard the English name is suggested as the Chin Emperor Rat Snake or the Blade Teeth Rat Snake. That's way better. We'll go Blade Ooh. Teeth. Blade Teeth. Um, well, and then it matches up with the with the Latin slash Greek, and that tallies that's up. That's what we want. Apparently, when you... And you'll remember one by remembering the other. When you catch this snake, it will flatten its head out, presumably trying to look more like a viper, which interestingly is something that Escalapian snakes also do. Hmm. It will also release a smell, a, a, a musk, which apparently smells like the musk of uh, the... The pit viper. So that's pretty cool. That is awesome. Yeah. That is not something I've heard of before. Yeah. And you look like you look at the habitat and it's a nice little sort of piney looking forest type thing with a little brook running through it. Beautiful. Never said how big they were, did we? They have a have an SVL well they had two individuals. One had an SVL of seven hundred and eighty millimeters, seven hundred and eighty five millimeters, the other had three hundred and seven. So what you know, if this is a Reasonable size snake. I'm not sure how that compares to the viper, actually. A 785 mil viper seems pretty, uh, pretty generous. 700 and how much? 85. And is that SVL? Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I've got here that um, Protobothrops jordani grow to a maximum total length of 835 millimeters, which includes a tail length of Ooh. 140. So, yeah, they're about 700. Nice, so nice. Size. Even the size is... is Presuming that's a fully, uh, full adult, yeah. fully grown adult female. No other one was, you know, clearly younger. But uh, perhaps another little bit of evidence. You know, you're going off an N of one, but you know, yeah. it's something. They <laughs> mentioned that um, a lot of predators of frogs have blade-like teeth. You know, oligodon and stuff like that. We've talked about recently yep. on the podcast yep. that are cutting up frogs, and so they have, they they basically expect that. Um, they are either eating eggs and they're slicing the eggs and consuming the liquid with those teeth or they're eating That's frogs. Um, or both. Or both. Why can't it be both? Um, but yeah, they don't know for sure yet because they haven't seen them eating anything and they haven't really done any stomach stuff. So No, no. But uh, that will surely come. Yep, I hope so. So yeah, a brand new species. Elafe Zifodonta. Very cool name. Blade teeth rat snake. And a cool looking creature. Have you got any other business? I haven't personally. Nope, because I think it was all covered at the beginning. Yeah. Um, Excellent. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we're on social media. You can get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you've got any questions or if we've made any mistakes, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. And uh, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening.